You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of the book by Rudolf Steiner, Anthroposophy of Fragment, A New Foundation for the Study of Human Nature. This is Chapter 6, Capital I, Experience. And there, after the end of this chapter, I'll indicate the end of it, there's an alternate version of this chapter that appears that I will read right after as Appendix 2. But you can stop reading after the chapter if you wish. Within the human being's experience of the I itself lies nothing that is incited by a sensory process. On the other hand, the I assimilates the outcomes of the sensory processes into its field of experience, fashioning from them its particular structure of inwardness, the actual I human being. This I human being thus consists wholly of experiences that have their origin outside the I, yet outlast the corresponding sensory experiences by persisting within the I. These experiences can therefore be transformed into I experiences. We can acquire an idea of how this happens by observing the experiences of our so-called sense of touch. Here nothing belonging to an object in the external world, enters the eye's experiences. The eye sends its own being, raying outward, so to speak, to the point of contact with the outer object, and then allows it to ray back into itself with the quality of what it touched. The eye's own being, raying back, constitutes the content of the perception of touch. Now, why does the eye not immediately recognize this perception of touch as its own content? Because this content has received a counter-thrust from the other side, from outside, and now returns corresponding to the imprint it has received from the outer world's impact. The eye content returns bearing an imprint that it has received from outside. The eye thus receives into the structure of its own particular content a certain particularity of the outer world. That these are actually inner eye experiences that have merely received the imprint of the outer world's particularity can be ascertained only by means of a judgment. Let us now assume that the eye's experience could not accomplish making contact with the outer object. The object would send its own being raying outward and the eye's experience would have to recoil before touching the object. In this case, an experience similar to the experience of touch would come about within the eye. But because of the weaker resistance that the eye asserts in its experience, something like a flowing in of the outer will occur. The experience of smell, in fact, can be characterized as just such a process. If the impact from outside is so strong that the object raying in from the outside digs into the eye's experience, then an influx from outside can occur. Only when the inner experience begins, so to speak, to defend itself can it close itself up against the particularity of the outer world. 
It has then, however, absorbed the influx from outside and now carries it within itself as proper inner being. This, the sense of taste can be characterized in this way. <clears throat> if, however, the eye confronts outer existence not with its primary self-experience, but with the essence of what it has assimilated from the outside, then a particularity from the outside can be imprinted into an inner experience that was itself originally taken in from outside. The outer world then makes its imprint on an inner experience, which is itself an interiorized outer experience. This is how the sense of sight presents itself. In the sense of sight it is as if the outer world were dealing with itself within the eye's experiences. It is as if it had first sent a member of its own being into the human being, in order to then imprint its own particularity on this member. Let us now further assume that the outer world fully fills, as it were, the eye's experience with what it has sent inward as a sense organ. Then the particularity of an outside will in sense experience reverberate in the inner, even though inner experience and outer world stand opposite one another. When the outer world then rays in, it reveals itself as equivalent to an inside. The eye will experience outside and inside as equivalent in character. This is the case with the sense of warmth. Let us compare the experiences of the sense of warmth with the life process of warming. An impression of warmth must be recognized as something equivalent in character to the inwardly experienced warmth that fills the inside. With the senses of smell, taste and sight we can speak of a streaming in of the outer world into the eye's experiences. Through the sense of warmth, the inner life is filled with the character of the outer world. A sense perception from within manifests through the senses of balance and self-movement and life. Through them the eye experiences its inner physical fullness. Footnote see below for alternate version of preceding two paragraphs. Something different transpires in the case of the sense of hearing. There the outer being does not merely allow our eye experiences to approach it, as it does in the sense of touch, nor does it bore into our eye experiences, as it does in the senses of smell, taste and sight, but rather it lets itself be shown upon, as it were, by our eye experiences. It allows these to approach itself. Only then does it counter with its own forces. The eye thereby experiences something like an expansion into the outer world, like a placing of the eye experiences outside. We can recognize a relationship like this in the case of the sense of hearing. Only those given to abstract comparisons will object that such an expansion into the outer world also takes place in the sense of sight, for example. Our perception of sound is essentially different in character from our sense of sight. In color, eye experience as such is not present in the same sense that it is present in sound. To an even greater extent, the expansion of eye experiences into the surroundings occurs through the sense of word and the sense of concept. 
That is the end of the chapter, although there are alternate versions of the text of the last two paragraphs, first of all, and then I will read an alternate version of the whole chapter. Let us now further assume that the outer world fully fills, as it were, the eye's experience with what it has sent inward. Then everything inside will have the particularity of an outside, even though it is inner experience. When the outer world rays in, it reveals itself as equivalent to the inside. The eye will experience outside and inside as equivalent in character. This is the case with the sense of warmth. An impression of warmth must be recognized as owing its existence to something equivalent in character to the warmth that is produced within and fills the inside. Anthropology must acknowledge this, since it must think of inner warmth as something about through inner combustion, as coming about through inner combustion, just as outer warmth comes about through combustion. If we reflect on the body-filling result of outer warmth processes, this appears as a second type of inner experience, as something that fills the eye and takes on the nature of the eye within the eye itself. Thus, something inserts itself into our eye experiences, filling the first eye like a second eye. This, eye, this second eye is indeed an eye experience over against the experience of the first eye. But to the extent that only the first eye really feels itself to be itself, it must conceive of the second eye as an image sensation of itself. And that outer world in which the second eye has its roots has fully become an inner world. If we can speak of how the outer world streams into our eye experiences in the senses of smell, taste and sight, we can also imagine the case in which a piece of the outer world that we recognize as having been interiorized not only works to fill up our inner life, as it does in the sense of warmth, but goes beyond a mere filling up to an overgrowing of our inner experiences. Footnote, the German Überwuchern means literally to overgrow and figuratively to take over. End of footnote. In this case, it would present itself like a sense perception from within, this, in fact, is the actual relationship with regard to the senses of balance, self-movement, and life. Through them, the eye experiences its inner fullness. That is the end of chapter 6. I will now read the appendix to that, which is pretty much a rewrite, uh, an earlier version of chapter 6. Appendix 2, an earlier version of chapter 6, pages 127 forward. Presumably, this is the original wording of chapter 6, before it assumed the form in which it appears in the printed version. The first two sentences of this version are almost word for word the same as in the printed version. Within the experience of the eye lies nothing that is incited by a sensory process. On the other hand, the eye assimilates the outcomes of the sensory processes into its field of experience, fashioning from them its particular structure of inwardness the actual I-human being. Within this I-human being thus lie directions of force that meet in the following way. In a certain sense, the I lives out its being toward all sides. Its own experience encounters forces from different directions, which appear differently according to the particular sense experiences. In the experience of the so-called sense of touch, 
the experience is such that its content remains shut up inside, based on the inner experience of what is approaching from outside only judgments are made. The eye, therefore, feels justified in assuming that the objects of the sense of touch are of the same nature as the eye itself, the only difference being that the same actuality, that as experience of touch takes place within, works in the opposite direction from outside. This judgment, in fact, more or less underlies all perceptions of touch, whereby its nature as judgment usually remains completely unconscious. The eye experiences itself in the opposite fashion. To have a perception of touch, the eye must unfold its experience outwardly, but constrain it through contact with the object and then let it return upon itself. The eye experience is only present when the totality of the inner experience can unfold unimpeded, when it fills itself solely with its own nature. The experiences of the other senses lie somewhere between these two extremes. In the sense of concept, the eye's experience is constrained least from outside. This experience is such that, in comparison to the eye experience, it feels subdued. It has lost something of its richness. It has given up something of its own strength. We can now recognize the following. In perceiving a concept, the eye gives up something of its own content. This occurs because it feels a force coming toward it. The eye, as it were, lets itself stream into this oncoming force. If only this ebbing of the, light of the eye experience were to occur, the eye would merely feel impoverished in its experience. The oncoming stream of force is a reality, however, and works together with what flows out. The result of their working together is the experience of concept. Let us now imagine that the two streams of force both flow in the same direction, but that one has been present for a long time when the other joins it. Then the second changes the first, and this change is based on the nature of the second. Through this image, the perception of concept can be illustrated. Let the two streams represent I experiences. Let the older stream flow in experiences of concept, the more recent one in the human eye experience proper. Their confluence results in a change in the older eye experience. This change then stands as a fact alongside the two eye experiences as a third. If we now see in this change the organ of the perception of concept, the meaning of this allegory appears. Two eye experiences work into each other, the newer one brings about the organ of concept in the older one, and depending on the change that the older one has undergone, the impact of the older one is revealed to the younger one. The same image can be applied in the sense of language, but we will have to imagine that here the younger eye experience is confronted far more with the change in the older experience than its original character so that alongside the older I experience streaming toward it, the younger experiences the change in the older to a considerable extent. This is even more the case for the sense of hearing, 
Here the older I experience recedes behind the change it undergoes through the impact. In the case of the sense of warmth, the change in the older I experience is such that the nature of this change is essentially the same as the nature of the newer I experience itself. The impact is then felt in the younger experience of concept as if something present in the change were also present as an impulse in the younger I experience. When warmth coming from outside flows into the I experiences proper, it is apprehended in a way that proves it to be of the same nature as the inner experiences of warmth. It is a different situation with the sense of sight. Here the image of the two streams must be chosen such that the stream representing the younger I experience itself undergoes a change alongside the change of the older. After the impact, it is not the I experiences themselves that act on one another, but rather the changes both have undergone. The younger I experience sends its own change toward the change of the older. If the change in the older I experience is as strong as the change in the younger, the older lets something of its nature flow into the younger and vice versa, resulting, in fact, in a balance of a sort between the older and younger I experiences. This is a way of illustrating the reciprocal relationship between the human being and the outer world that occur in the experiences of the sense of sight. In the case of the sense of taste, the change in the younger I experience proves to be stronger than the change in the older one, and the result is, in fact, as if the change in the younger I experience were resisting that of the older. Only a part of the younger I experiences flows out, as it were. The rest again steps back into the younger I. The force of the younger I experience proves to be even stronger in the sense of smell. It occurs most strongly in the so-called sense of touch. There it retains its full character in the face of the older I experience, and upon contact wards off the latter in order to experience its entire contents within itself. In the sense of touch, the human I proper sends out its forces so that they are not changed through contact with the outer world, but experiences them again working back from the opposite direction. Therefore we can also say that in the case of the sense of touch, the stream of I experience flows outward, giving up nothing of itself to the outer world, but re-experiencing its entire content in the direction from outside to inside. In the sense of smell, the I experience streams outward, loses a part of its content, and experiences the rest in a state of having been changed by an impression from outside. The I supplies its own content as changed by the impression from outside as the experience of smell. In the experience of taste, the I must give up more of its content. The change in and impression on its own being is thus experienced more strongly than in the experience of smell. In the experience of sight, the eye gives up approximately as much as it receives. In the experience of warmth, the older eye experience proves to be the stronger. The younger eye must give up more than it receives. It thus experiences a different kind of change through having something impressed upon it. 
This change is not one that is worked upon it from that is worked upon it from outside, but rather one that it works upon it itself from within outward. How this change from within outward proceeds then becomes clear in the sense of hearing. Tone no longer lives in the same outer world where the causes of the sense of taste and smell must be placed. Tone unfolds from within outward. This is even more so for the sense of language and most of all for the sense of concept. Text ends at this point and that is the end of the appendix to chapter 6 and the final end of the complete reading of